Welcome to the Institute of Directors series of podcasts on the Shinquin Commission, the future of inclusive business, harnessing diverse talent for success. The Commission is examining the key barriers to the recruitment, retention and progression of individuals from underrepresented groups, with specific reference to disability, ethnicity, gender and sexual orientation. This series will discuss important themes that the Commission focuses on and aims to provide examples and guidance on the importance of diversity in the workplace. Welcome to the second episode of the Shinquin Commission podcast series. This episode, we're focusing on the theme of ethnicity. My name is Hugo Lee. I'm the media and comms lead at the IOD, and I'm pleased to be joined by both Rashmi Dubey, national spokesperson for IOD policy and governance ambassadors and partner at the law firm Gunnar Cook, and I, Stephanie Boyce, president of the Law Society. Stephanie is also a commissioner on the IOD's Shinquin Commission. Welcome to you both. I want to start by asking you both what role you think data has to play in making businesses more ethnically inclusive and diverse. So, for example, gender pay gap reporting has been mandatory for certain businesses since 2017, highlighting pay gaps within a business. Do you think the same should be introduced for ethnicity? Stephanie, perhaps you could give us your thoughts first. Well, absolutely. So, what we do know is that data drives change. Um, and with a specific focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion data, um, it has become a critical issue in recent years. And there have been a mirage of regulatory, statutory, and good practice initiatives to try and focus people on what needs to change to increase the transparency around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, and Obtaining the data um, is, um, is not as simple as it sounds because the difficulty is getting people to hand over that data in the first place. And we know that um, there is uh, potentially a lack of trust, a lack of confidence around handing over that data and what that data may be used for. Um, so it, it, it's, it's slightly difficult in as much that data drives change, but if we have to convince individuals to hand over the data in the first place. So we've got to work out how um, uh, uh, we can convince individuals and empower and, uh, you know, instill the confidence in individuals to hand that data over. Um, But absolutely, in terms of uh, looking at um, the impact of data and the role it plays in making businesses more diverse, and indeed whether or not there should be an SFC uh, pay um, pay gap whether that should be addressed absolutely um, we have seen uh, the progress that gender pay gap has made albeit was still some way to go but a recognition that it is a starting point but uh, you know part of the solution but not whole of the solution and Rashmi what what's what, what about you what's your view I think I would have to echo what Stephanie said, but she's correct in saying that unless we get the data, we can't see where we have to improve. And when I say we, the the businesses, the the organisations, if I was to use an example of training at the gym, for instance, if I look at my stats 
five months ago and see where I am now thinking I've not improved. Well, actually, only the data is going to show that whether I've improved or not. What we see from our subjective viewpoint is very different from what the reality is. Um, There was a survey conducted by CIBPD in 2019, um, which showed that they were tracking the benefits of reporting on ethnicity pay information. And by gathering that data, they could see how the inequalities looked overall in the workplace and how they could develop more transparency and accountability to ensure that minority employees had equal access to the development and progression of opportunities. But until you get that data, you you can't, it's not the sole um, stake in the ground, but it's a very useful stake in the ground to help Im- drive improvement. I think the second point Stephanie made was absolutely critical, and that was the reluctance to hand over data. Now, some data can already be accessed, um, pay, for instance, but other data, you know, completing out questionnaires or handing out even just on our ethnic backgrounds, there is a lack of trust. And that lack of trust is embedded culturally for many, many years. So it's a big shift in society to try and gain that trust. And that has to stem from the culture of the organization as well to show that they can be trusted. Great. Well, thank you both. Perhaps we can now turn to the importance of language. How important is language in creating an inclusive culture in in the workplace, particularly in relation to ethnicity? Um, Rashmi. Language is one of my key soapbox moments, I would say. Um, I think language is absolutely vital on every aspect um, of diversity. The way we use words, the way the words generate a feeling and emotion and a reaction to peep from people has it stems from everything so it creates trust it creates transparency um, it's understanding the right terminology to use for the right individual um, you know I was watching a TV show the other day and um, in the TV show the doctor says to the lady well you're from you know your ethnicity is Afro Afro-Caribbean and she's like no they're two separate things you know and he's like well it's just a tip box I'm just ticking the box and that's what it feels like sometimes that we're pigeonholed into what is your visual appearance and this is where society is just changing generally and it's whether the organizations can keep up and understanding that language plays such a critical part in everything and how we use it just even Um, If we moved away for a moment from the um, ethnicity, just using the word chairman, you know, as opposed to chair. Um, And if we're looking at just fundamentals like that, there is, again, the issue also arises around language where I would say predominantly the boards are, board of directors are still white male and therefore cannot see some of the language that they use and how that can not be inclusive um, and also very restrictive. And language also plays a fundamental part just in jobs uh, descriptions. 
when when people are applying for jobs and how we use that. And we saw that just with um, word changes in the construction industry to be more inclusive to women, let alone any ethnic minorities. So it do, it plays a role at every single level. Well, thank, thank you. Um, Stephanie, is there anything that you'd like to add on, on the point of language? Well, no, absolutely. To, to echo everything that Rashmi has said, in as much that, you know, our profession, the solicitor profession, has made good progress in recent years uh, in increasing diversity and inclusion, um, and it's a far more reflective uh, of society today than it than you know it was a decade ago. But it's still clear that different groups in the legal profession still face significant obstacles, and you know language plays a huge part in that. And when I think about you know my own situation, my own personal situation, and how. Um, others have seek to uh, address me or, or, or label me in terms of when I was first elected, uh, a national newspaper was quick to uh, uh, to say, you know, Law Society Alexis for ethnic minority uh, president. Um, and OK, that was fine. But then as time went on, somebody pointed out um, that actually I wasn't the first person to uh, I wasn't the first ethnic minority to become president. There was somebody else. And for a number of reasons. Uh, they were not, um, you know, they did not disclose their ethnicity. Um, so, you know, there's huge um, ramifications around the choose type of language we choose to uh, use as to how we choose to address people. But simply going back to the point that Rashmi made earlier is that by having those conversations with people, so um, and asking people what do they prefer to be called addressed. You know, because whilst I moved away from uh, ethnic minority, I moved to person of colour because that was my history. That was my experience and my background. Um, But, you know, plenty of people have been uh, very quick to say they don't like that for whatever reason. And this is the label that, you know, that they want to uh, impose upon me. But it very much is a personal decision. And it must be, in my mind, conversation that we have with individuals rather than grouping people collectively together and assuming that that one label fits, you know, everyone. Um, Because people's experiences are different um, and that should be, you know, recognised when we are in the type of language we use and when we are having these discussions. Well, thank you for that answer. Um, You... As part of that answer, you talked about the steps that the solicitor profession has taken. Um, And I I was wanting to explore that a bit further. What are the sort of policies and practices that your organisation or other organisations that you're aware of have um, implemented to encourage applications from from, um, diverse candidates? Well, absolutely. There are a number of um, different initiatives that have been tried and tested over the years. But, you know, over the last years, what last years, what we have seen following the abhorrent events uh, around the death of George Floyd um, and the subsequent Black Lives Matters movement is what we have seen is a willingness, an open willingness to talk openly and frankly about some of those structural inequalities that still exist within our professions, within our society. Um, and, you know, this willingness to actually want to do things differently to affect change. And so uh, what the legal profession has done, and we've seen a number of initiatives come to the fore in terms of 10,000 black interns 
Um, and that's exactly what it says, is that this uh, initiative to um, ensure that those uh, uh, from the black community embark upon a period of internship. The Law Society has the Diversity Access Scheme, which is um, uh, targeted at aspiring solicitors who come from uh, a disadvantaged background, and they will be given a period of mentorship, work experience, and sponsorship in terms of either the legal practice schools or the certain qualifying exam. We've got the social mobility ambassadors, those who have qualified against the odds, who will talk about their own journey, their own experiences. And so much going on in terms of, as I say, the initiatives that the legal profession have brought to the fore. But as somebody said to me this morning, um, the fact, you know, uh, and they come from a financial services background, and they said, look, we're not where we would like to be, but the fact that we are talking openly, you know, and he said this is a conversation that he could not have had within his business a couple of years ago. And the fact that he can say, well, actually, there is not diversity at the table or, you know, we need to be thinking about how we bring diverse recruits into our business, but not just enough, as I say, to bring a colleague, a diverse colleague into the business but to, but to ensure that they are heard, that they are given an opportunity to thrive, progress. Um, but the fact is that we are having these conversations um, because we know that diversity of thought and the richness it brings to our business um, is not just a moral imperative, it's a business imperative. It makes business sense. I just want to add um, to that it's something, and I just want to emphasize again what Stephanie said, we are all different and we all come from different different backgrounds. And some of the issues that some people face is they are grouped together. So when they say Black Asian, it's one group all of a sudden. And they're very different groups. And then within those groups, they're very different groups again. Um it's it you know it's almost saying well just because you're Scottish you're English, it, it it's that kind of thing where you would never say that to a Scots person. Um, it's interesting as well because um, Deloitte's have done a survey on the Black Lives Matter and a result of the change that's occurring, um, particularly with millennials and Generation Z, and they found that sixty nine percent of them were likely to stay with an organisation five or more years if they believed the workplace was diverse and open to diversity, um, with particularly in terms of ethnicity. If they felt that they weren't, they were they were prepared to leave and change the organi- change organisations. That is critical from a business perspective. Because you're going to be losing workforce, you're going to be training people, spending that time, that downtime, only to lose them if they think you are not open to diversity of ethnicity. And in such a, and as we know, the labor market in, is now lacking in skills in any event, why would you want to spend all that time and money and lose your workforce once you've trained them? So there is a business case as well as what I call the, the social case um, in, in having this discussion. I mean, that's really interesting because um, we've mainly focused on uh, 
within this podcast on re- on recruiting so far, but you started to talk about retention there, Rashmi. And so I suppose what can businesses do to retain um, ethnically diverse talent? Um, how important a role um, does company culture play in this? Well, culture plays a huge part in this. Um, and, you know, the Law Society's 2020 Race for Inclusion report um, showed that, and when it looked at the experiences of Black, Asian and minority ethics listed in the profession, they uh, reported lower uh, instances of well-being, less career progression, uh, uh, they often faced direct discrimination and microaggressions in the workplace. And they were more likely, two years more likely, to leave uh, their role, uh, and indeed leave the legal profession entirely than their white colleagues. Culture plays a huge part. It's not just enough to bring, as I say, diverse colleagues into the business. What are we doing when we get them there? You know, how are we ensuring that inclusive culture where they feel recognised, represented, included, um, and going back to the point that I made about thriving, uh, progressing, um, and staying, you know, how are we allocating work? Where are we looking when we recruit? What is the language we're using? Because language is important when we're recruiting. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, what does, when I look at a, a prospective company's website, um, you know, marketing material, can I see myself there? You know, um, and so culture for me, it, it, you know, it starts at the top and it's got to permeate its way through the whole organisation. It's not just the responsibility of some of us. It's the responsibility of all of us. And we must practice what we preach. And Rashmi, um, how, how can we, so, I mean, on that point, but also looking at how we can ensure um, the career progression of candidates, you know, what, 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 is, your, what is your view? Um, again, it would start, like Stephanie said, from, from the top. So it starts with the board of directors. Um, and how diverse is that board? But in order to retain candidates, um, the, the question really starts from recruitment and then culture. So if you're recruiting for the sake of recruiting as a tip box, you're never going to succeed. You're never going to retain them because what you're not doing is building a culture around everybody. You're not being inclusive. Um what you need to do is, you know, regularly speak to everybody to ensure that there is a shift in culture if you don't already have it and look to improving issues around progression, particularly of all candidates, well are the stumbling blocks. Um, and you'll have the data already to see who is progressing. So that's something the company can already do is can't say, well, okay, where do we start? We'll start from zero and we've got nothing to look at because you do have something to look at. You've got the data there already. Um, you know, are you helping the, the um, candidates, the employees with sufficient information to help them understand what's, you know, how they can actually progress themselves and what's the benefit to themselves? Are you helping them develop on at every stage? Are you providing mentorship? Um, and mentorship is critical and sponsorship, two separate things. You know, there has to be a sponsor within the practice of larger organizations to say, um, I've, I've been there, done that. You know, 
how can I help sponsor you, be an advocate, a voice in the room for you? Uh, mentorship is critical because mentorship, you know, isn't just one way. Reverse mentoring is also, you know, important in this day and age. And I think working closely with all candidates, it's, you know, I think there will be a huge richness of information that will be taught from people's experiences and their background that most people within organizations are just missing and not fully understanding because we're not just coming from a different color of skin. This is a different culture. You know, we have a different viewpoint and a different lens on life, which will just help everybody because it's just not tapped into at the moment. And until you do have those conversations within your culture of the organization, it's not going to work. One of the things I will leave you on is saying, um, somebody once said to me, there is a difference between um, diversity and inclusion. And diversity is being asked to the party, but inclusion is being asked to dance at the party. And that's the difference. I like it. Um, I suppose you, you you talked about the role of of the board of directors, um, the role of sponsorship and mentorship. Um, whose responsibility is inclusion and diversity within a company? It has to be. Um, it has to come straight from the board of directors. I you know I say that as um, as somebody part of the institute of directors, somebody who's done the diploma on on the, on the chartered director course. Um, everything stems from the board of directors and you have to look at everything. It has to form part of your strategy. Are you inclusive? This has to be a question that is asked. It sits firmly with everything. You are looking at inclusion, even if you took ethnicity out of the equation for a split second and just looked at um, inclusion and diversity um, from the cognitive side. What skill sets are you missing? Well, if you're thinking of in those terms, why can we not be inclusive of everybody? And look at your biases. And you are, well, you will have bias. Look at Amazon, for instance. I believe it was Amazon who um, wanted to have better recruitment. So they developed a program to try and be more inclusive of ethnic minorities. It turns out they hired even more white people and they couldn't work out why. And they realized the program that they had created <laughs> had its biases because of the people who were programming it, recruited in their image. Um, and until you address your own biases and start looking in, then how are you going to know? And the way to do that is often you need to bring external people in to help point it out. It's diff a difficult conversation because people don't, people feel well, we can't be like that. You know, I'm fully aware of this day and age and I'm, you know, we're doing all we can, but actually, are you really, you know, it's um, going back to that gym analysis again. Well, I've done everything I could this session, but have you actually pushed yourself? Because look at the, look at the data. If, you know, there are certain organizations um, uh, that turned around to me and said, I would like to be more inclusive with ethnic minorities, but obviously there are not that many people in the industry that work in this sector. And I'm looking at them going, you do see me, right? And they don't. They don't actually see me. 
And that's a huge problem. You're not actually seeing what's in front of you or what's there. And you're because you're it's like when you buy a car and you, if you buy a red car, that's all you can see on the road. Because suddenly you're just in tuned into that. Um, and that's why it's critical, I think, to bring somebody to the organization to help you see things that you don't see. Thank you, Rashmi. Um, Stephanie, is there anything you'd like to add on on that point? Well, the only thing I would add is to echo and repeat uh, what uh, Rashmi has already said. Is that you know it's a responsibility, you know, um, uh, started with the board, but you know, ultimately for me, it's a responsibility of everyone. Everybody has a role to play, a part to play. Um, and, you know, and, and one of the things that we saw, you know, around following uh, uh, the, the Black Lives Matter movement and the death of George Floyd and so forth was that actually when we did a number of roundtables, we didn't just invite uh, the decision makers in the organisation, you know, the senior decision makers. We uh, invited uh, from junior members, uh, junior staff to HR people, all of those individuals um, because they each have a role and a responsibility to play in this. Um, and lots of the change was being driven from the bottom up, um, you know, uh, where senior uh, senior members were being forced to listen to the more junior members as to what they wanted and the change that they wanted to see. Thank I'm you. Also, well, can Sorry. I just add on that, though? Um, what was interesting about the Black Lives Matter movement was it did take organisations by surprise, um, which always surprised me that it did. And But we've moved on in time, but I'm not sure if the organisations have still embraced the change that needs to be done. Um, and I think that that's, they still need to look at it and not forget about things like that. Great. Well, absolutely. And that kind of goes back to my point about, um, you know, certainly for the legal profession, you know, whilst, you know, much has been done because we're certainly more diverse than we, you know, today than we were uh, a decade ago. However, a lot more needs to be done to ensure, you know, uh, that we are truly uh, representative of the society that we serve. Agreed. Stephanie, you are the first person of colour to be elected as president of the Law Society. What do you, what do you hope that your appointment will achieve? Um, and what impact do you hope to have in your role? Well, absolutely. Can I first say that as the 177th, the sixth female, the first black office holder and the first person of colour to become president of the Law Society of England and Wales in its almost 200-year history, absolutely still takes my breath away. Um, it should not have taken almost 200 years to have a person of colour, um, you know, in this position. Um, but what, my, what, you know, ascending to this role as the representative body for some 215,000 solicitors in England and Wales, what it represents is visibility. If people can see it, you know, they believe that they can do it, they can achieve it. Um, and so, you know, I promised the Law Society many things, but above all, two things, that I would be visible and I'd take the Law Society to places it's never been. And so what do I hope to achieve? The question perhaps is, you know, what have I achieved? 
by virtue of being in this space, it's a remarkable platform to occupy. An absolute privilege to represent uh, my uh, profession and serve as president. But equally, um, an opportunity to achieve change. Um, and that's exactly what I've been doing, is speaking very openly and candidly and challengingly, challenging uh, uh, other parts of uh, the profession, you know, uh, trying to influence policy, uh, uh, government decisions and so forth, to ensure that there is equity, but not just equity, but equality of opportunity as well. So I've long made it my mission to leave the profession more diverse and inclusive than the one I entered. But I'm clear there's a call to action there, that it must be a shared ambition with each and every one of us playing our part. Because, you know, as somebody said when I first uh, spoke publicly as Deputy Vice President and said this was my intention, they said, what are you going to do? And I said, no, no, it's not what am I going to do. It's what are we going to do? It takes a village to raise a child. And it's going to take all of us to ensure that, you know, um, that individuals who have the ability, aptitude and so forth have the uh, have the opportunity to um, to shed, to put their best self, their best version of themselves forward um, and to really progress and thrive, as I said. Um, and that has to be the lasting legacy after I've long left office to hand over the baton to my predecessor. Uh, 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 the Vice President uh, of uh, the Law Society, to ensure that she will then hand over that baton and so forth and so forth to continue this discussion, to continue advocating for change. And that's change across the board. It shouldn't matter what your characteristic is, your colour, your gender, sexuality, ability, disability, whatever. It doesn't matter. What matters is that people are... Um, you know, that they are recognised for the individuals with the skills and experience that they have and given the opportunity to progress and thrive. So, I mean, that nicely leads me on to my final question, which is, should leaving a profession more inclusive and diverse than when you joined be central to every business leader's mission? And perhaps, um, Rashmi, you can you can start off this one. Absolutely. Any any leader of any organization, any CEO or president um, of any type, or even a chair, um, wants to leave, should have the desire to leave the organization better than what they took over. Um, unfortunately, in the past, what that has meant in a commercial sense was a higher turnover. Um and now we are moving into an era where I think um, we led before, you know, with with our heads, you know, and now we're going to start leading more with our hearts and understand that actually we need to be very much more inclusive because together we are better. Um, and that has to be at the forefront of any leader of any organization's mind is exactly what Stephanie just outlined in her previous answer, that um, it is how do we work together as, as a unit and how do we leave this better for the next person coming in um, so they can improve on those building blocks and make a really good, strong foundation at each time. Um, so you know, that's always been 
the priority for me as well. You know, how, how do we do this? And you can only do that by being open, transparent, understanding where your biases are, having the open and difficult conversations with people. But if you're going to do it as a collective, we know when you're implementing any strategy from the Institute of Directors, we know this, that you have to win the hearts, not just the minds of the organization. And that's the culture change. And that has to be from everyone. Thanks, Rashmi. Any any final comments, Stephanie? Well, of course, I would say that uh, it should be the mission of every business leader um, that you know that they have a call to action that they leave whatever it is, as, as Rashmi has said, whatever they you know uh, organization business they're in, board they chair, whatever that they leave it um, in a better place than they found it, but also that they have a lasting legacy of making a difference. And that certainly has been my driving purpose, to ensure that it's incumbent upon us all to leave this world, leave our professions um, in a better place than we found it for the next generation, as Rashmi said, and others to come. Um, So absolutely, it should be the driving mission for every leader, Um, but not just in terms of, you know, inclusion and diversity. It should be in terms of equity, in terms of progress and so forth and so forth. Well, thank you both for for joining me on the podcast today. I've found it a fascinating um, insight into the issue, um, and you know how how we go about ensuring more inclusion and diversity in the workplace. So, thank you, thank you very much. Um, and listeners, you can find out more information about the work of the IOD, including that of the Shinkwin Commission, on our website at iod.com. Thank you for listening to this Institute of Directors podcast. For more information on the work of the IOD, including that of the Shinquin Commission, please visit our website at iod.com.